Well, good morning again. Good morning. I was thinking through this week uh, what we should do from a study of God's Word, and I came to the conclusion we'll just continue in the life of Abraham. For those who haven't been here, uh, we've actually, this is not our first day, we've been here since uh, the start of January, and we started a series called um, Heroes of the Faith, particularly looking at the life of Abraham. So I thought uh, we would continue that today because I think there's still some amazing lessons for us to learn uh, as we consider Abraham. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. That's where we're going to spend our time today, mostly. And we're going to continue with uh, what is going on. If you remember, we started this several weeks ago. Abraham and his family left Ur. After Abraham's father died, God continued to call Abraham and they ended up going from Haran down towards the land of Canaan. At that point in time, God gave a uh, promise, a very special promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, that uh, he would have a land that he could call his own, and that through him, through the seed of Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Now Abraham, he was at that point in time 75 years old. And then uh, we have many events that happen in Abraham's life. And uh, we see from the last couple of Sundays that Abraham and Sarai, his wife, decided to run ahead of God's plan. And that had consequences, as we discussed last week. And then we get to this chapter in Genesis 17. I just want to read the first eight verses for you. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multiple of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, or the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You know, in this chapter we're going to discover how... Uh, 
God came to Abraham and really elevated his faith yet again that he, God alone, would fulfill his promise. The promise that was made 24 years earlier. This is a long period of time. The previous uh, chapter and in the previous chapter in chapter 15, we have God appearing to Abraham. That was 13 years earlier. So there's a long period of time that Abraham's waiting. His wife is still barren. No children have been produced. So we have 99-year-old Abraham. And we have 89-year-old Sarah. And the promise that was being reaffirmed is that through Abram and Sarai, there would be an heir. Because we know that Abram and Sarai tried to assist God in his plan, right? (laughs) Here's Hagar, my maidservant. Sleep with her and and have a child, and that will be fulfilling God's promise. But you know, even though we as human beings tend to run our own way at times, God still has his plans and purposes, and God is still faithful to his plans and purposes. Because God's promise here is irrevocable. And there's another lesson we can learn from this, And this is such a frustrating thing for us, right? But God at times is in no hurry to fulfill his plans. We get this from the life of Abraham. 24 years. It may be the same in your life. You may be wanting to see the promises of God fulfilled in your life. but it's not according to the plan and purposes of God. I know waiting is hard to do, but it's in faith we wait. It's in faith that we wait. So we see for the first time in 13 years, God appears to Abraham. And God appears to encourage Abraham. God reveals a new name to Abraham about himself. And God uses this name about himself called God Almighty, or as we know, El Shaddai. Remember years ago we used to sing that chorus, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, blah, 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 blah. Well, El Shaddai is a compound name of God, and it means the God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power. And this is the first time in Scripture God addresses anybody by this name, El Shaddai. And it's, uh, it's interesting because if you go to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, this is what God says to Moses. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, a different name, I am Yahweh. Okay? And then he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. 
but by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So God uses different names for himself to describe his relationship with the people to whom he's talking. And in this case, he's using this name, El Shaddai, to really reaffirm to Abraham, I'm the God who's going to make things happen. In my sovereign power, this is going to happen. And this name for God appears regularly throughout the book of Genesis, and particularly in relation to divine promises about children, about descendants, and about offspring. Let's just do a, a quick survey of that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 28. And this is uh, during the life of Jacob, right? So Abraham's great, well, great, Abraham's grandson. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So it's Abraham's grandson. Genesis 28, verse 3. I'll start at the start of the chapter, actually, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to a Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty... Oh, should I? God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessings of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abram. You go further over in the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, and you'll see this. And this is God speaking to Jacob himself in much the same way as God is speaking to Abraham in this account. Verse 9 of Genesis 35. God appeared to Jacob again and he came from Padaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your very own body. Get the picture of what El Shaddai means? So, by God invoking this name of El Shaddai, he was communicating to Abram that he alone was able to fulfill the awesome hope of a people and a land. And in fact, God was saying to Abram, there's no need to let go of this promise because you're 99 years old. Abram, there's no need to succumb to a passive desperation. There's no need to scale down the promise to match your puny thoughts, Abram. No need to resort to a fleshly expediency. There's no need of trying to fulfill the promise in any second-rate way. Abram, I want you to know, by me using this name of El Shaddai, that all of your life and all of your future lies in this that I am God Almighty. 
Isn't that encouraging? When there's days of doubt, when there's trouble afoot, that God never changes. He is God Almighty. The same God that appeared to Abraham is the same God we have a relationship with through our faith in Jesus Christ. So these promises really are clear for us also that everything, all of our lives, all of our future lies in the fact that God Almighty directs and guides We need to get a vision of this more regularly because so often we become myopic in our view. So often we concentrate on our circumstances and we take the eyes off Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. You know what? The way we live is determined by what we think of God. If God is our El Shaddai, the awesome, mighty God of this account with Abram, then our lives will live out the fullness of God's promises to us. See, what you truly be believe about God is the most important thing in your life. Any thoughts of a God less powerful than the God of Abraham will shrink your soul and neutralise your faith. This is even seen, isn't it, as we consider God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Any thoughts about him that are less than what Scripture reveals? What does Scripture reveal? That Christ came to this earth to save sinners. You see, we all have sinned. That's the state into which we are born. We are separated from God. But Jesus, in his beauty and in his glory and in his obedience to the Father, went to the cross. Was crucified by the hands of angry men according to the predetermined plan of God. And through that act of obedience provides Salvation prize a way to be in the presence of God by placing faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Has that been your experience? If it's not, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here to hear this message. Because there's only one way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that only happens because El Shaddai, 
the all-powerful God has made a plan. So what happens after this is announced to Abraham or Abram? I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. There's two commands that are given by God to Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. Are they easy commands? Let's have a think about that. Why, you know, the Lord could have chosen a number of different verbs of motion, right? He could have said crawl. He could have said move. He could have said run. He could have said hurry along, make up for lost time. But instead he chose the image of placing one foot in front of another. Repeatedly and consistently. Now, walking is an action that carries you from one place to another, unless you're walking backwards. But who walks backwards? Right? Walking carries you from one place to another. It's a sustainable action over a long period of time. And note the unusual sort of, I guess, proposition on this command, walk before me. Normally we would say, walk beside me, or walk along with me. But God says, no, walk before me, which conveys uh, sort of the idea, walk in regard to me, or live out your life before me. So this picture of walking is really an analogy that refers to Abraham's relationship with God. That's what's happening here. Walk in regard to me, doing the right things repeatedly and consistently, day after day, throughout your entire life. That's the walk of faith, right? It's really interesting because if you go over to Ephesians chapter 4, we have a very similar uh, command. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 1, you have this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... This is Paul speaking to a church, speaking to a church of Ephesus, saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he goes on to describe what that walk looks like. It's a walk of humility. It's a walk of gentleness. It's a walk with patience. It's a bearing up one another in love. And it's a walk that's eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. And if you go further into Ephesians, you'll see Ephesians chapter, uh, later in chapter 4, it talks about no longer walk as you used to do, but put off the old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. So walk in a way of holiness. And then Ephesians 5 talks about walking in love. Why? The only reason we can walk in love is because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the motivation for your walk. Your motivation for your walk is always the fact of what God has done for you. 
as you fall more deeply in love with Christ and with, with God, your walk will be reflected by a walk of love. And later on in Ephesians 5, it talks about walking in the light. Walk as children of light. And in the middle of Ephesians 5, it talks about walking in a wise way. So there's lots of New Testament examples of what it means to walk before El Shaddai. And then we have the, uh, the second command, and that your walk is to be blameless. This has the idea of being complete, or whole, or, or sound, or unimpaired. Having integrity or truth, have a, have a walk of truth and integrity. I want to make this point. It does not mean sinless. Okay? No one can achieve that. The command means to remain morally grounded even after mistakes. You think about the life of Abraham, that's his experience. The command implies that being blameless results from walking before God. So the two commands are linked. So what's Abram's response to these commands? He fell on his face. <laughs> he realised he's in the presence of God and he fell on his face. Very unlike what happened in Genesis 15, if you go back to Genesis 15, when um, God, or the word of the Lord, appeared to Abraham in a vision... Abram's response was to really berate God about the fact that he had no children. Thirteen years of silence tends to shape us. And that's what's happening here. And we see this response of Abram falling on his face. Time had taught Abraham some valuable lessons. When God speaks, listen. <laughs> right? When God speaks, listen. How does God speak? Through his word. That's how he speaks to us. Yes, so Abram had an audible voice of God speaking to him because the word was not written yet. We have God's word now and God speaks through his word by his spirit to us each day as we open the pages of scripture. And then God continues to speak to Abram and he changes his name. You're no longer be called Abram, you're going to be called Abraham and you think, well, so what? Well, Abraham means father of a multitude. Okay? Abram is father of a multitude. So just imagine it. How many times, as mum and dad, did, or just in everyday life, does someone call your name? I don't know. How many times? What, 20 times? 30 times? 50 times? Maybe if you've got someone who's a bit of a dripping tap, it could be 100 times. Right? But imagine this reminder for Abram, right? Um, <laughs> quite, a, quite a humorous, really, 
because, uh, you know, you say, good morning, Abraham, or good morning, father of a multitude. Here's lunch, father of a multitude. Good night, father of a multitude. I mean, Abram might have get the point here, right? His name has changed, he's hearing it regularly, and all of a sudden he's realising I'm going to be father of a multitude. And in addition to that name, an astounding promise is made that kings shall come from him. And this promise was reconfirmed a little bit later in Genesis uh, with Jacob when he said to his son Judah in Genesis 49, a thousand years after this promise was given, that Judah would be the founding of the line of kings. And then from Saul to David, we would see this partial fulfilment until a further thousand years later, we see the birth of Jesus. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because as you open the the New Testament account and you look at Matthew chapter 1, you have these very pertinent words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Kings will come from you, Abraham, and the greatest king will come. The son of David, Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have a prediction of the ultimate scene as we see in Revelation chapter 19. I'll read these verses for you just slowly. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 tells us this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise for a kingly line is in the person of Christ who will come again. And all nations and all peoples will fall before his face and say, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Back to Genesis 17. The Lord leaves it crystal clear as to how these promises will be fulfilled. Because he states, I will make this happen. I will make Abraham exceedingly fruitful. He hasn't even got a son yet. He's 99 years old. And by the way, this is a particular promise to Abraham. So I've got any 99-year-olds out here. This is not a promise for you. 
<laughs> Amen for that. Right? And if you're, you're 90 year old and you're, you're a lady amongst us, this is not a promise for you. God hasn't revealed this to you. This is a promise particularly for Abraham and Sarah. They'll be exceedingly fruitful. Nations and kings will come from him. And the, the covenant, the promise that God has made will pass on to generations after him. What else does the Lord say? That land will be given, so he reaffirms the land from Genesis 15. We have that whole scene of, of the, the land boundaries that will be given to him, which, by the way, have never been reached. And because God is faithful to his promises, there's going to be some point in time in the future that those land boundaries will be given most likely during the millennial reign of Christ. And this one here, God will be their God. So what we see from this covenant reassurance is that we have an everlasting covenant that's mentioned on a couple of occasions in here, verse 7. throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And the land is an everlasting possession. That's the promise that is given. It makes me consider the promises of God for us, right? God is a promise-keeping God. We see it here in the life of Abraham and the life of this nation that's going to be birthed out of Abram, which is the nation of Israel. And we wonder why there's squirmishes and fighting and war over land in Israel today. <laughs> because those folks understand the promise. By and large. They're not going to give up land because they see it as an everlasting possession. And God says this will be an everlasting possession. But you know what? We talk about this often. There will never be peace in Israel until the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes back. Amen. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what we are praying for is the intimate return of Christ. We're not praying for the people here, say, even though it's a good thing to pray for, but we're praying for the fact that Christ, the Prince of Peace, will come to rule and to reign, to fulfill his promise given back to Abraham. Then there's a sign of the promise that is instituted by the Lord. I'm not going to go too much into this, but the sign of the promise is circumcision. For those who are younger amongst us, ask your parents about what that is. Because I'm not going to explain that right here and now. You know, I made a bit of a faux pas back in the, in the prayer room this morning. I said, oh, I'm not sure if I'm looking forward to being induced today. <laughs> 
as opposed to inducted. Okay, so there is a bit of a difference, right? <laughs> well, I said, oh, don't worry, my wife's an <laughs> yeah, endoscopy nurse, she understands. But anyway, um, yeah, so circumcision was going to be a sign of the promise. Much like a rainbow is a sign of God's promise of never to flood the earth again. Much like um, keeping of the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant made with Moses. So circumcision became a sign of the Abrahamic promise of the everlasting covenant between God and his people. Moses wrote about circumcision and he symbolised it in relation to one's spiritual commitment to God, to Yahweh. He wrote here, And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Circumcision of the heart was the key thing. Even though this was an outward sign, a physical outward sign of circumcision. Jeremiah also states the same thing. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with more to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. You see, this external sign of circumcision signaled a whole life commitment uh, to be one of God's people. It did not save you. Okay? Did not save you. It identified you with the promise. And that's something you must understand. And you look at Galatians deals with that very strongly. If you want to do further research on that. Okay, so a sign was given. And then we have another confirming of the covenant. Now read this. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Another name change. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, this 90-year-old woman. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The same promise that was given to Abraham. Then Abraham fell on his face the second time. But this time he laughs. Fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. <laughs> I think if I was Abraham, I would have laughed too. I honestly do. But I don't think it's a, it's a laugh of faithlessness 
It's just a laugh of, what do you mean? <laughs> How can I do this? Because if it was a laugh of faithlessness, I think God would have responded in a different way to the way he does. Because God knows Abraham's heart and God did not correct him. Later in chapter 18, Sarah laughs and she is corrected because of her unbelief. But Abraham here did not lack faith. But his faith was limited. And I think we get into that situation ourselves so often, right? We don't lack faith, but our faith is limited. He was believing, but his faith was pushed to the limits of trust. It's really interesting if you go to Romans chapter 4, we have further revelation about this incident. And we see in Romans 4, this is said. Romans 4 verse 18. Talking about Abraham. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the key, folks. God is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. Here we see the impossible fact of barrenness at an age of 90, and and God is reaffirming his promise. I will, I will, I will. We can also translate that to your and my state before we came to faith in Christ. What a hopeless place to be. We can't work for our salvation, but God in his grace provides salvation through faith in Christ. Just an aside here, God also confirms what the boy's name will be. His name will be Isaac. Do we know what Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. Laughter would ironically engulf Isaac's existence, beginning with his birth. The laughter was an expression of God's blessing and their joy and also a reminder of the aged couple's doubts. Remember every time they would hear that baby cry, Oh, Isaac! They would go back to Genesis 17 and Abraham would remember, I laughed. But God has provided. The same with Sarah. And then what happens? Oh, by the way, yeah, I'll go back there. Um, Sarah, Sarah's name means princess. So we've got old father of a multitude and we've got princess and we've got laughter. And uh, they're the names that are given by God to Abraham, Sarah and Isaac. 
So to be a princess, what are you? You're a descendant of a royal line. Part of the fulfilling of the promise that kings will come from you. Which king will ultimately come? Jesus. Which king is going to ultimately reign? Jesus. Starts here, folks, back in Genesis 17. Isn't our God amazing? His plans are beyond our comprehension, aren't they? So thankful he gives us this word to, to dive into it. So what happens? We have immediate obedience. This is one of the hallmarks of Abraham's life, actually. When he finally gets it, <laughs> he obeys immediately. Genesis 17, 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. It was immediate obedience. I don't know what he did. Maybe he set up a tent and instead of having a red cross on top of it, he had a great big C. I don't know. <laughs> Come along to the circumcision tent, fellas. This won't hurt at all. But his obedience to God is astounding. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of the house. Now, how many men are we talking? We don't really know, but I can give a good guess here. You go back to Genesis 14, verse 14, where Abraham rouses an army from his own, own family to go and rescue Lot. And it says, When Abraham heard that his kinsman Lot had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. So some 15, 18, 20 years earlier, there's 318. So I imagine it's going to be 400 plus. His whole household was circumcised according to God's design. Abraham and his obedience to God ratified the promise with the prescribed sign. It's a dynamic event in establishing the sign of the covenant. The Lord has announced his name as the Almighty, the omnipotent, sovereign, the one who can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. Abram became Abraham, the father of a multitude. Sarah became Sarah, the princess. Together they would birth a royal dynasty of kings. Their yet-to-be-conceived son was to be named Isaac. Laughter. A sweet symbol of faith struggle. A sweet symbol of faith struggle. So what are the lessons that we can take from this account of Abram? Well, number one lesson, God is faithful. If God says something, it is true. If God promises something, it will be complete. 
when God commands something, we should be obedient. Immediately. Because God is faithful. Secondly, we learn that God's timing may not be aligned to our agenda. All right? Why? Because I think so often God wants to develop a depth in our trust of him. See, depth of spiritual maturity doesn't come quickly. It must be built over time. That's why young folks, I see, you know, I just have a heart and a burden for you to be in the word of God, to understand what God's word tells you and to develop a deep love for the Lord Jesus through seeing what he has done. And that's the same for all. It's not just young people. They may be attending church for years and never open God's word, never understand the the beauties of who Jesus is. I said this last week, if greed is the demon of money and lust is the demon of sex and pride is the demon of power, then speed is the demon of depth. So often we just want to be there, right? But God takes us through the refiner's fire to shape and hone, to cut away our pride, to cut away our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, learn to trust. And following on from that, when you grow deep, your discernment will increase. So as you grow deep, your discernment will increase, your anxiety will decrease. And they're great promises. You know, we sang that hymn today, Speak, O Lord. It's, a, it's an all-time favourite of mine. And I just love the words of the last verse. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. See, that's where it starts often, right, for us. The renewing of the mind. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace we will stand on your promises, and by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. God is faithful, is our El Shaddai. And we see that faithfulness as we look at the bread and wine before us. You know, the ancient Israeli community, the sign of the covenant for them was circumcision. The sign of the covenant we now have by faith in Christ is the bread and the wine. It's a sign of remembrance. And as followers of Jesus, we celebrate this every week. We could do this every day, we could do this monthly, but in our tradition here, we choose to do it every week. And we're simply doing this as a response to what Jesus instructed in Matthew 26. Matthew 26 is this. 
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We have this wonderful opportunity every week to celebrate remembrance of our Lord's burial, death and resurrection. Through taking a simple piece of bread which symbolises which symbolises his body broken for us. And a cup which symbolises the blood shed for us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And it's an eternal reminder that we are in him. So I ask the stewards to come forward and I'll pray and we'll share communion together. Please, as the bread comes round, Take that and eat, and we, we will hold the cup together and drink together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this vivid reminder of the new covenant, the vivid reminder that uh, through your body that was crushed, through the blood that was shed, that we have, uh, through our faith in that very act, access into your very presence. We praise you for the symbolic nature of this simple act and pray as we take the bread and the wine, we'll rejoice that you are a promise-keeping God. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west and that one day we'll rule and reign with our precious Saviour. Pray these things now in the powerful name of our risen Saviour, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.